Thank you guys for having me. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 15. That's where we're going to be studying today. You know, we started this retreat looking at the hope of the gospel and uh, just how wonderful a hope the, the gospel is for us because of who Christ is, um, how in Christ we have a Savior who um, kind of helps us make sense of our lives as he is made supreme and as we taste of his fullness. And then Saturday morning, we kind of talked about the idolatry of our hearts and how that wants to pull us away. It's like this constant gravity that pulls us away from the hope of the gospel. And last night, we talked about just the power of the gospel to erase fears, uh, like that stress, the anxiety, all the things that want to devastate us and hold us captive in this life. The gospel can actually remove those things from our lives. And this morning, we just want to look at how we can fuel that hope of the gospel. Right? The hope of the gospel isn't like this one thing that you just memorize and you kind of hold on to. It's actually this ever-expanding thing because it's about the person of Jesus. It's about a relationship. And as that relationship grows, the hope of the gospel grows with it. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So yeah, we're going to talk about how important it is to read your Bible and to pray. But hopefully you see that tied to an ever-expanding, ever-growing hope in Christ. So um, let me just pray that this would happen in each of our lives, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into next, to this morning's passage. Gracious Father, I thank you for the, your kindness to us in giving us Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not reduce him to like... Um, just like a, a rabbit's foot or just some kind of lucky charm that we hang on to or just, yeah, another like little part of uh, our lifestyle, just another piece of furniture in our homes. Lord, I pray that he would truly be the center uh, of our lives, that, that we would live lives that revolve around his glory and his greatness, that that reflect the light of his love in this world. I pray that as we think about redemption and the cross, that we would be aware of the devastation of our sins, that we would be aware of our own, the idols of our hearts that want to convince us um, that the very things that break your heart will be things that satisfy our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would just allow us to focus our ears on your word this morning, that as we listen to you, we would be transformed and become more like you. And Lord, I pray that what would uh, just be ignited in each of our hearts as we go home is, is just a... a um, a love for Christ that is reflected in this unshakable, unwavering, and ever-expanding hope as we get to know Christ more and more for the rest of our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, to help us think about this topic this morning, I want to just ask you uh, a question. How do you evaluate your time in the Word and in prayer? How do you evaluate your... If someone's going to ask you, like, hey, how's your quiet time? Like, your time in the Word, your time in prayer. How do you evaluate that? How do you know when you had good time with God? Maybe for you, it's good if you've had any time at all reading your Bible. That's good. Like even a minute. Something is better than nothing. Maybe you see it's good if you can kind of keep to a Bible reading plan. Maybe you've got like, maybe you started to read the Bible in a year plan this January and you're trying to stick with it. And that's kind of your gauge of whether or not you're doing a good job. Uh, maybe you make a point to tell somebody every day about your quiet time. So I know some, some people in the church at Lighthouse, they do that. They, they text someone. They've got an accountability partner. They text, hey, this is what I read today, and this is what stood out to me. And that's how they kind of keep track of their quiet times. And all those things can be helpful. 
But I think we often evaluate Bible study and prayer with quantity, like how much do you pray and how much do you read your Bible, or with intellect, like how well do you know your Bible, or what did you learn today that you didn't know yesterday? And, and those are important questions, but I want to ask a different question this morning to help you evaluate Scripture and prayer. And, and my question is, how personal is your relationship with God? How personal is your relationship with God? Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I heard the phrase personal relationship with God all the time. Did you guys hear that phrase a lot growing up, personal relationship with God? I heard it all the time. I might have heard it as like an altar call question. I don't know if you guys even know what an altar call is. It's like this time in the service where people like call. If you want to make a decision to make Jesus your personal savior, walk the aisle of the sanctuary and come forward to the front of the sanctuary and bow your, uh, on your knees and accept Jesus as your personal savior. I would hear the question in Sunday school. We were all asked, are you growing in your personal relationship with Jesus? So the word personal just always seemed attached to Jesus's name. Everyone talked about Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior. I would even hear like presidents and politicians say, yeah, I, I don't go to church, but I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I heard people say, I talk to Jesus every day. I say good morning to him every morning. I say good, good night to him every evening. He's my best friend. He lives inside my heart. Now, when I was young, I really believed certain things. Like I believed I was a sinner and that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose again, promising new life. Um, but I, I thought believing those truths would make him personal, like that I would have that personal relationship that everybody was talking about. But those things did not make him personal. They didn't. I wanted that relationship. I wanted Jesus to be personal. I wanted to walk with him and talk with him. I wanted what people were saying about him living inside my heart. But there was this gap between the, the personal relationship I professed and the impersonal relationship that I daily lived with. I, I felt that every time I tried to pray, every time I tried to read my Bible, did you ever feel that gap between the, the relationship you profess to have with God and the impersonal relationship that you might feel like you live with every day. How personal is your relationship with God? I really felt that gap, that, that gap growing up, and I was desperate to fix it, mainly because I knew if I didn't have this relationship with God, I was going to go to hell. So as a kid, from the time I was five or six until I was 14 years old, I prayed for salvation and for Christ to come and live inside my heart essentially every day for eight or nine years. For eight or nine years, I was going up and down the driveway of the Christian life and never actually getting out on the road of a relationship with God. I mean, I told other people, like adults, about the struggle. Like, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I don't have a personal relationship with God. I remember I had this one Sunday school teacher, and to help me, she uh, gave me these two remembrance rocks so uh, one rock was to put under my pillow so I would hit my head on it when I went to sleep to remember to pray. And then one was for me to step on in the morning so I'd remember to say my morning prayers. So that's what, that was her attempt to help me. Right? So no matter what I tried, though, I was stuck in this very impersonal place with God. I, I just It felt like a relationship with Jesus was this terrible game that I was really bad at playing and didn't make any sense. And I was always losing. When I was 14 years old, I, I went away to this Christian music camp, and one day at lunch, 
this junior high girl asked if she could pray for our table. And, no, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a camp, but, like, everybody just prays on their own, right? They just close their eyes, right? So for her to say, hey, is it okay if I pray for all of us was, like, really different. So she prayed, and as she prayed, I could tell that she really knew the God she was talking to, that it, even though it was a simple prayer, like, it opened my eyes to see that, yeah, that she liked talking to him. And that my view of God up to this point had been this detached, impersonal relationship because I was... I was really blind to the purpose of the gospel, the real purpose of my salvation. I started to learn just by listening to her pray that this is why God saved me. God saved me not just so I would escape hell. He saved me mainly so I could know and enjoy a relationship with him. And the way he brings me in close to himself is not by having me hit my head on a rock when I go to sleep so I remember to go through the chore of prayer but by giving me the grace of his word and prayer. And it's as I started to know and enjoy God that my life started to be transformed. Like that night after that girl prayed that prayer, I went back to my dorm and I was with all the other guys in my room. And I said, hey, can we just pray together before we go to sleep? And so we prayed together and then we prayed together every night for the rest of that three-week music camp. And then I just started having a relationship with God. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the the transforming grace of of Scripture and prayer. But I wanted to start this morning by just sharing my testimony a little bit because I believe the biggest hurdle to transformation is that our personal relationship with God can be pretty impersonal at times, if we're honest. It's not just quantity of Scripture reading and prayer, although quantity is good, but, but more essential is knowing your God and knowing Him well enough to talk about Him and talk with him personally. I believe this is why we feel helpless and scared, often in sharing the gospel and in making disciples and in counseling each other. And a lot of times this is why change doesn't happen in our hearts and our lives. It's just we don't know Christ well enough. The the Christ that we profess and we become comfortable with this gap that exists between our confession of faith and our relationship of faith. How am I supposed to share the gospel with someone if I really feel like I don't even believe it day to day. So this is how we need to evaluate our time in the word and in prayer. We must ask, how personal is my relationship with God? Knowing your God well is how he wants to change you, how he wants to grow you, how he wants to help you. So in counseling, you know, I don't know if for all of you who are here, you probably know this, but I'm the counseling pastor at Lighthouse. So I get to walk with people and oversee a, a team of counselors that helps people kind of move toward Christ. But the starting points are always different areas of struggle, right? whether it's pornography or um, cutting or whatever the issue is. Maybe it's marriage problems. Maybe it's just incredible amounts of stress. Whatever it is, we find these different topics and struggles in life, and we want to walk toward Christ in those struggles. But well, one question in counseling that I hear all the time is, why is it taking so long for me to change? Why is it taking so long for me to change? So today I want to explain as clear as I can that change not only happens exclusively inside our relationship with God, but it also happens at the speed of our relationship with God. I think some, sometimes people come to counseling and they think that that's kind of like this fast forward button on their relationship with God, right? That they're going to come and get all this truth and all of a sudden magically they're going to change. And it's good, but truth is only valuable in it as it fuels your relationship with God. And as your worship of, with, of him grows, you will change. 
But there's no fast forward button on a relationship. God will not let you look like him without getting to know him. And the matrix he has set up for getting to know him is scripture and prayer. Those are the bread and butter of knowing God. And the main effect of that relationship is transformation. Um, author and writer David Mathis puts it in his book, Habits of Grace, like this. You can think of scripture and prayer like a faucet and a light switch. You and I can flip on a switch, but we don't provide the electricity. We can turn on a faucet, but we don't make the water flow. And there would be no light and no water without someone on the other end providing it. And that's how we interact with God. That's, that's how we interact with the grace of God. His grace is essential for our lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the grace of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open. So scripture and prayer are the circuits and the pipes which he has promised to pour out his grace through. Now, there are many passages we could look at to understand this, but I thought the picture in John 15 might help us see scripture and prayer as the transforming grace that we draw from the vine of our relationship with God. So this morning, we're going to focus mainly on verses 7 and 8 of John 15, but just for context, I'm going to read the passage starting in verse 1. John 15, 1 through 8. John writes, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, as we enter into this passage, it's important to know where we are in the life of our Lord. Right? It's Thursday night in the upper room, and Christ is celebrating Passover with his disciples, and it's the night before his crucifixion. Right? Judas has already left the room to go and betray him. Right? Judas is the branch that Jesus is talking about that doesn't stay. That doesn't abide on the vine, that falls to the ground and that withers. So now Jesus is speaking to his other 11 branches that are abiding. And he's talking to them about this stuff, not because he's afraid they're going to fall off the tree like Judas did, but because he wants them to see what, what Judas could not see, right? the reason for abiding. Now the word abide is this Greek word meno, which just means to remain or stay. And there are a lot of analogies and words Jesus could have chose to describe the Christian life. I mean, like running a race or fighting a war. I mean, he's, it's the night before he's going to be crucified. So you would think like some kind of incredibly magnanimous, huge, heroic illustration or metaphor would be really important, like running a race, fighting a fight, waging a war. And when you first hear the word abide, right, it doesn't sound heroic, like fighting a fight. Right, branches aren't heroic. They don't make big splashes. 
In fact, the word abide as a command sounds like pretty passive. Just hang out. But it's actually a powerful command because in verse 10, he compares our abiding in him to his abiding in his father. He says, abide in me the way I abide in my father. And if you look at Christ's relationship with his father throughout the Gospels, it's a relationship full of listening and praying and hope and fuel. His, his, it was his fuel, his compass, his comfort. It was full of love. And he's saying to us, abide in me the way I abide in my father. Another way to picture this is to picture a marriage. And when a couple joins together in marriage, they're called to abide together. But that's not a very like passive command. Like a couple has to do a lot of things to love each other. It requires effort and, and love and forgiveness and patience and trust. It requires dying to self. Right? So abide is not just this chilled out command. When Christ calls his disciples to abide and gives them a picture of a vine and a branch, he's calling them to take up the work and put in the effort of knowing and enjoying him. And the result is transformation. So the passage lays before us the necessity of abiding in Christ for a branch to transform. And God, as God dwells within us and we dwell within him, stuff ha happens, right? Like leaves grow, fruit grows, and we are able to give that fruit to bless others. And it's all because God's word by his spirit is flowing in and through us. So practically, practically what this means is when we show up to our quiet times or Sunday mornings or our small group times to hear a message or to come before the word of God in any way, we're not meant to come before scripture as spectators. Like we've arrived at a theater or a stadium. We have to look at scripture the same way someone hemorrhaging blood from a car crash looks at a pint of blood. Right? Like, I need that in me or I will die. <clears throat> to help us practically understand this desperate picture of abiding that Christ is giving, we're going to look at three ways that abiding in Christ produces a transformed life. Three ways abiding in Christ produces a transformed life. And just as a doctor begins with asking questions before administering medicine, the Spirit, through the Word, begins His abiding work by searching and revealing our hearts. So that's the first way abiding in Christ produces a transformed life. His Word searches and reveals hearts. Verse 7 begins with, if you abide in me. Right? Scripture starts by helping us see the obstacles to abiding in Him. And it does that through searching our hearts and exposing what we abide in instead of Christ. Right? Psalm 139, verse 1, starts with, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, when is the last time you've said that after a quiet time? Right? Like around like 9.30 or 9.25 this morning, right? You finish your quiet time. Is that like how you responded? Wow, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. As you meditate on scripture, you need to feel uh, his word, the spirit of God through the word of God, asking your heart tough questions that make you uncomfortable, that make you reevaluate your life. So tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. when you're gonna getting in your comfy chair and you've got like whatever it is you have for breakfast, and you like, you know, ginger apricot scone and specialty coffee, whatever it is, and you're sitting in your comfy chair preparing for your quiet time, remember that what is happening there is you are a sick patient going to see his or her doctor. That's what's happening there. 
It's not this moment of nostalgia or it's not a moment of, for you to check something off of a list. You are a sick patient who needs to see the doctor. When you come to God's word, you are looking for the spirit to make you uncomfortable as he runs tests after tests on your heart, diagnostic tests. For example, let's say tomorrow morning you open up and you're reading Matthew 22:37, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Some of the, the diagnostic questions the spirit could be running would be things like, well, what do I love? Why do I love the approval of man so much? Why do I fixate on the, uh, the attention and the appreciation of that particular person? Why am I willing to compromise my convictions to be accepted by certain people? Then you stop and say, oh, Lord, you have searched me. That, that is what God does for his, for us as believers. His word searches us out. It, it comes into our lives like this SWAT team kicking down doors that we don't want to open, probing into the depths of our hearts so we can see what is truly going on inside us. So we know where we've been abiding apart from God. So I can see where am I failing to embrace Christ? Where am I not trusting him? Where am I not enjoying him, leaning on him, acknowledging him? Because once I find where my faith in Christ is weak, that's where I'll find the roots of all my sin. So if you feel hopeless, because it, it seems like you can't talk to your parent or your sibling without fighting, right? Scripture can reveal so much more to you than say you're sorry and don't get angry. But that is not what scripture is for. Scripture reveals your heart. You might read that verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the spirit works to help you ask, hey, what do I love? Do I love the Lord my God with all my heart? Well, no, last night I loved being right and proving that I was right with all my heart. I loved getting my point across with all my heart, even though it meant hurting that family member. And God, honestly, you're not the reason I want this, this bickering and fighting to stop with this family member. I just don't want to come home and face stress and headaches. Father, you have searched me and known me. Is that your experience when you're reading scripture? As scripture searches you out, you start to see the lies you believe, and it reveals where your heart has been abiding. All that idolatry stuff we were talking about, it reveals those things to you. God's word doesn't just search my heart, though. It's, it shows me how small my view of God is. And as that starts to happen, as scripture starts to scratch away at our hard hearts to reveal unbelief, we start to see, this is where I'm sick. And, and, and we start to see how I need to grow in, in trusting and in worshiping Christ. So when is the last time you felt searched out and your heart revealed from your time with God in his word? So first, his word searches and reveals our heart. The second way abiding in Christ changes us is his word transforms our heart. His word transforms our heart. And the next phrase in verse 7 says, and my words abide in you. Now, what does he mean by the phrase, my words abide in you? Is he talking about scripture memory? I mean, not mainly. Although scripture memory is really great, I highly recommend it. But here, when he says my words, he is talking about himself. Jesus is talking about Jesus. Look at verse 4. Um, he says, abide in me and I in you. And then verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So when he says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, he's not introducing something new. 
It's the same idea that he was bringing up in verses 4 and 5. He's repeating himself for the third time in this passage. But this time he gets more specific in the way he abides in us. He abides in us through his words. It is a relationship. The relationship we have with Jesus is a relationship of words. Words that you don't just listen to. Words that that you live in, that you abide in, that you never turn from. Because those words are the clearest Christ that you have. Like we started by praying, oh Lord, search me and know me. And at this point, now we're praying, show me Christ. I want to see Christ. I need to see him so I don't abide in other things. And then when we open our Bibles to see Christ, we're positioning ourselves to receive his grace for change. We must open up our Bibles for the same reason that Zacchaeus climbed the sycamore tree to, to look at Christ. We have to open our Bibles for the same reason that blind Bartimaeus placed himself on the roadside and cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when everybody told Bartimaeus to shut up, he cried out even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We must open our Bibles because we want to see Christ. So how do you place yourself before scripture? Are you a spectator wanting to be entertained? Are you a scholar doing research? Are you a student checking busy work off of your to-do list? Or are you a blind man begging for sight, begging to see Christ? Reading the Bible and praying might seem as unimpressive as flicking on a switch or a bathroom faucet. But if you turn them on, what flows in is a relationship so great it will change you. A transformation is wonderful, right? Bearing fruit as a Christian is wonderful. It's a beautiful experience. But that transformation is a side effect. It is a side effect of knowing Jesus, of abiding in him. So how will you see him tomorrow morning at 6 a.m.? To see Christ, you must understand one thing. And this is what we talked about in the very beginning. Scripture is the gospel. Tomorrow at 6 a.m. or whenever it is, maybe it's 4 a.m. for you or 5 a.m., maybe 8 a.m., whenever it is. Tomorrow when you open up your Bible, you're not just opening up a Bible, you're opening up the gospel. Scripture transforms us not just because it houses the gospel, but because it is the story of the gospel. It is the story of the glory of Christ and our redemption. The story of the Bible is the story of the gospel. So, okay, so if I share the gospel with somebody, I've just given them the smallest Bible I have, right? And if I read the Bible from cover to cover with you, like if you and I sit sit down and read the entire Bible all the way through, I've just given you the longest explanation of the gospel that I could give. Does that make sense? Scripture is the gospel. The message of the gospel, the message of Scripture, are one message that God has given us for salvation and change. He can transform us through his word because that's what the gospel does. It changes us. Right? When you got saved, you changed, right? If you have put your faith in Christ, things started to change inside your heart. You started to love different things, right? That powerful work of the Spirit, it doesn't become something else now that you're a believer, right? It's still, as you look at the gospel, you change. The Spirit continues to do a work of change in your hearts, I still need to see that gospel every day in Scripture to open my eyes to the wonders of Christ so that I worship Him and change. The issue for Christians as we study our Bibles is not 
whether we're going to be good theologians, or sorry, whether or not, excuse me, it's not whether we're going to be theologians, but whether we're going to be good theologians or bad ones. And that has everything to do with how we see Christ in Scripture. I, I mean, I've, I grew up in a Christian home. I was homeschooled for most of my life, but also went to Christian schools. I went to a Christian college. Then I went to a seminary after that. So I, I lived my life mostly in this kind of Christian bubble world. And I got to see how a lot of people who call themselves Christians act. And I can tell you, many of my professors from my Christian college and friends in seminary, they could handle scripture with this theological dexterity of a gymnast, right? They just knew how all these verses connected to all these other verses, and they could talk about all these nuances of the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, and they could say all this stuff that I didn't know, and I was just amazed at them. And then they would turn their back on Christ and live a life of sin and rejected faith. And, and it's all because knowing Christ was not the aim of their theology. He was not the reason they studied scripture. He was not the focus of their meditation. He was not the object of their worship. It's so e- it is very easy to look and to sound transformed when it's expected of us, right? Like it's all like a lot of you grew up at Lighthouse. You know, it's easy to look and sound transformed when it's expected of us. A mom who is yelling at her kids can stop on a dime when the phone rings. A student looking at pornography can stop in a second, a split second, if a friend walks into the room. We can come to church and have like a John Piper quote for every occasion. I have one coming up here in a few minutes. Right? Some people think that if a preacher can really preach, then he must be godly. Not true. Not true. And it scares me that we are so often passionate about looking and sounding transformed to fit in that we neglect the power of God and the wisdom of God to actually be transformed through knowing Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are not okay. Like We need transformation, but the path of change is not through pleading with God like a genie to, to zap us with change so that we'll be different, so we'll no longer sin. The, the path of change is not making lists of, of resolutions not to sin or through reading self-help books like how to manage your anger. You can't manage sin away. Your sin is not going to go away after you do a hundred mission trips or after you've given a hundred million dollars away to the needy. It, this is the only way it happens. You have to park yourself in front of scripture, put your elbows on either side of the Bible and adore Christ. That is what it means for his word to abide in you. Perhaps you're here and you you can't change because you're not experienced, you have not yet experienced God's gracious saving love in Christ. Maybe you've never cried out in faith for forgiveness and experienced being reconciled and saved and brought close through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for your sin. I invite you Wait no longer. Call on him while he is near. Do not delay. Maybe you're here and you think, really, Pastor Tim, this is your answer? Read my Bible? I've tried that. I really have tried that. And I'm not changing. Well, remember that anyone can read a Bible. Unbelievers can teach classes on reading the Bible. right? But it's one thing to walk up to a beautiful banquet feast and admire the feast and say, what a beautiful feast. It's another thing to actually eat the feast. I am asking you to indulge of the banquet of blessing that comes as you adore Christ in Scripture. 
Feast on Christ. If this feels intimidating, overwhelming, we have resources um, that we can give to you. Um, Pastor Eric is a wonderful person to talk to you. If you would like someone to specifically disciple you through how to study scripture this way, you can talk to Pastor Eric about who you could meet up with. We, uh, one book we would recommend is One-to-One Bible Reading by David Helm. That could be a help to you. But honestly, I can tell you, you can even sign up for counseling. You can sign up for counseling to deal with any struggle you face. If you want to know how do I study scripture and connect it with this issue that I'm facing, you can sign up for counseling. But you can also simply start by just opening your Bible tomorrow morning at a set time and pray. In a set place and set a time, read your Bible and pray, Lord, search me, reveal my heart, and transform me by your Spirit. The third way abiding in Christ changes us is through prayer. It's through prayer. His word ignites prayer in our hearts. The result of having your heart searched and transformed is that you're going to want to talk to this guy who's doing this work in you. The third phrase in verse 7 is, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, the result of abiding in Christ and having his word abide in you is that you're going to want to talk about your greatest longings and desires with Christ. And what you will want in those moments, uh, when, excuse me, what will you want in those moments of prayer? I think about it. If you are pursued by God, drawn in by God, filled with God's word until you are left delighting in Christ and bearing fruit, what are you going to ask for? What does a branch want in life? It wants to be so attached to the vine that it can be so filled with life that it can bear fruit for the good of the vine and for the good of those who are walking by to have fruit. So no matter the heat, no matter the storms, we ask for that. When the the life of God's word dwells in us, we're going to ask for more of him, more of that life. John Piper writes this. It is not wrong to want God's gifts and ask for them. Most prayers in the Bible are for the gifts of God. But ultimately, every gift should be desired because it shows us and brings us more of him. When this world totally fails, the ground for joy remains. God. Therefore, surely every prayer for life and health and home and family and job and ministry in this world is secondary. And the great purpose of prayer is to ask that in and through all of his gifts, God would be our joy. Now, as we look at this passage, it's important here that prayer is placed after Christ's word dwells in us. That is the pattern throughout scripture, that the word comes before prayer. That is throughout scripture. One really clear place you see it is Psalms. Now, Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. But the first psalm, Psalm 1, is not a prayer. It's a, it's a poem about the importance of meditating on Scripture. This is the pattern you see in life as well. You only know your language as you hear it or read it from others. At birth, right, you're dropped into this kind of sea of language. And very slowly, as you listen to tons of words being said to you, you learn how to speak. Like, Papa, Mama, Bottle, Blankie, Yes, No. And all our speech, every word that comes out of our mouths is drawn out of the well of words 
that we have heard our entire lives. We're all spoken to before we can speak. So that means our prayers should only arise out of our immersion in Scripture. So when I read my Bible, I'm learning how to pray. Tim Keller says it this way, We should plunge ourselves into the sea of God's language, the Bible. We should listen and study, think, reflect, and ponder until there is an answering response in our hearts and minds. When our prayers lack the nourishment of Scripture, they run on empty. And the only answer is to refuel them with the Word. Have you ever had those moments where like, you're praying and you're like, I don't even know what to say right now. And it, it, we get our vocabulary for God from what God has said to us about himself in Scripture. Letting Scripture fuel your prayer life will help you pray better. And here are a few examples. I think I included them in your notes of how Scripture can specifically help you pray in a few areas. Like First, Scripture shows us how to talk about sin in confession. So Scripture has to be the fuel of your confession, not just your feelings. God, forgive me for getting angry. Amen. Now, that's not a bad prayer, but he can, God can help you describe your sin in ways that help you more intelligently fight sin. Do you describe your anger or your lust or your fear of man to God the way Scripture does? Are you honest about the lies you believed and the ways you failed to trust Christ, the idols you were abiding in apart from Christ? Right? We need Scripture to guide us to see clearly how to confess sin. Second, Scripture shows us how to ask God for help. And as we ask according to what we know from Scripture, Keller says God will either give us what we ask for or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we know what he knows. I think I love that. Right? God, when we ask for stuff, God will either, either give us what we ask for or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. Scripture will give us a clear vision of a God who hears our prayers, who helps, so that we can say from the bottom of our hearts, your will be done, because what's more important to me than these things I'm asking for is your glory. Until you can hope in God enough to say those words and mean them when you pray, you will never know any peace. You will feel compelled to try to control people, control your environment, and make things work the way you think they ought to work in your life. But if you are abiding in Christ, you will hope in his perfect care in all of your requests. Third, Scripture shows us how to adore and rejoice in God. Prayer, Scripture shows us how to adore and rejoice in God. Prayer is just audible faith. I hear what I think about God when I listen to myself pray. What I treasure about him when I pray. I mean, for a long time, I, when I look back at my prayer journals from like high school and college, they're almost 100% confessions of sin. <laughs> because all I could think about when it came to God was him in light of my sin. I'm just always feeling this condemnation, confessing sin. But if I am immersing myself in scripture, then I am also overwhelmed with his beauty and I want to adore him. Scripture helps me pray and in ways that just adore him and reflect on who he is. If I don't know God well from his word, then I will know how to adore him and thank him and celebrate him and see why he is worthy of my praise. Maybe you know you're not where you need to be this morning in prayer. You can listen to your prayers and you actually see that audible faith reveals a weak faith. 
God is shallow, impersonal, general, foggy, far away. Remember, remember that you will learn to talk to God in prayer just like a child learns to talk to their parents by listening and learning words. Just be sure it is his voice that you are imitating because it is his voice that allows you to see him and adore him and know how to talk to him. Three very practical things you can do right away is first set apart time for prayer. Set apart time for prayer. If you're not sure where to start, open your Bible and start reading it and pause every at every verse and just turn that verse you just read into a prayer. Go through a passage of scripture line by line and talk to God about whatever comes to mind as you're reading that text. Use use practical ways to prevent mental drift, right? When I, a lot of people, when I talk to them, they're like, yeah, I, when I'm praying, it's like the best ideas I've ever had come to my mind when I'm praying. I just want to go do stuff. So here are some ways that I do it. You can pray out loud. A lot of times I'll pray out loud. That keeps my mind from wandering. You can pray with a list, all right? So either you're going through a list or have a blank list. So when those great ideas come, you can write them down and get to them later, and you can keep going on with your prayer. Or you can journal your prayer. Just write it if you're tired of listening to yourself talk which I get tired of listening to myself talk, you can just write it out. The, the result of abiding in Christ and letting his word abide in you and enjoying that relationship through prayer is that you will bear much fruit. You will be transformed. And he calls that here in John 15 proof of discipleship. And, and that's the only proof. There is no other way for a branch to tell you that it's healthy other than for good things to grow on it. Matthew 7 and James 1 call that fruit being a doer of the word. There are people that may not read the Bible, but that will read your life, right? that are in your life. What, what, does your Bible, what does your life say about the gospel? This isn't just true for each of us. It's true for all of us together. The more each of you are tapped into the word, the more transforming power will be present by the Spirit of God in our entire church family at Lighthouse. But the more the church gets away from the centrality of the hope of the gospel, the more our church will run on fumes and see people as trying to get people to conform to a pattern of religion rather than transformed into imitators who, of Christ who hope in Christ together. This picture of discipleship and transformation that, that we long for and pray for and dream about at Lighthouse will ultimately come down to how each branch abides in the vine. Knowing and enjoying our glorious Lord individually changes who we are as a church together. So as we go from here, just ask, how personal is my relationship with Christ? Is he my hope. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, I just thank you for providing us with your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It allows us to put one foot in front of the other in a dark and deceived world. It allows us to find our way through the darkness and to find our way toward Christ. Lord, I pray that as we have talked about reading scripture and prayer this morning, that it is not just a challenge to all of our hearts, but it is, it is a way that we see this is how we can hope 
more and more in the gospel. This is how we can protect our hearts from drifting from the hope of the gospel that was purchased for us by Christ on the cross. Lord, we thank you for loving us enough to give us a hope that far surpasses any hope the world the world could try to give us. Lord, I, I pray that um, there would be conversations that happen in relationships in, the, in this youth group, in these high school students, Lord, that they would be talking to each other about the hope of the gospel, encouraging each other and, and to, to press on, to run this race as a cloud of witnesses, pressing on toward Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith and who walks with us each step of the way, each time we turn to him, Lord, we hear his voice speaking. Um, Lord, I pray that we would turn to him more and more so that our faith would grow and that you would be more glorified as we bear fruit for your sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.